Okay, turn your Bibles. Where? To Mark. Loaded passage today. Excited about this passage. Uh, Everyone has that friend, or at least I hope you have that friend, because everyone needs that friend. They're the Tabasco sauce in your life, right? That friend for me goes all the way back to high school, and he's now an entrepreneur that started in his garage, so successful, it sweeped the whole southern part of the United States and the southeastern part. Uh, In those early days of his business, he had to always be on the road, had to always be meeting with people, had to always be trying to win important people to his vision and to his ideas. And on one such day, though, he had to go through a very scary secretary. And this very scary secretary was having one of those Hagar the Horrible days. The phone was ringing off the hook. People were coming in from the factory doors, complaining about this, saying they needed that, demanding this over here. Stress surrounded her desk like a dementor. The frustration in her life, if it was a fever, it was 105. And so while she's freaking out, my friend is standing not but a foot in front of her desk, just standing there, just looking at her. And finally, reluctantly, painfully, she acknowledges his lowly existence. She slams the phone down, looks at him with fire in her eyes, veins bulging out of her neck, right? And she bellows, who are you? And he takes one step closer because that's all he could do because the desk was there. And he locks on her eyes and he says, I'm Batman. (laughs) God, I miss him. I really miss him. And eight chapters of Mark are about a year of doing ministry. Um, No human being has gotten Jesus's identity right yet. Now, there have been declarations of identity that have been correct, but no human being has. God has. God said, this is my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with him. The demons have. What do you have to do with us, Jesus, son of God, the Christ? But no human being. And so now we come to the continental divide of the whole book. Everything before Peter's confession and everything after sits right here. It's one of the high watermarks of the whole book. So what should you and I expect to find here? What We come to this, what should happen? I mean, what should your expectations to be? Should it be like, oh, okay, maybe I'll, I'll learn something new today. I'll win at the Bible trivia next week. What should we get? Here's what we should get. Here's what we should find. Here's what we should expect. Thunder and lightning. <laughs> the unleashing of heaven. Uh, the clearest view of the identity and the person and the mission of Jesus yet in the book of Mark. And along with that, the clearest view of you in the book of Mark. Here's what's going to happen. This passage is so loaded, I got to spend two weeks in it. Actually, I'm going to look at verses uh, 34 through 38 next week because they are too loaded. But here's what's so fascinating is that when we get this high watermark, this clear vision of who you are or who God is, he gives you himself and at the same time he gives you you back. Every time Jesus reveals himself, he gives you you back. So we're going to spend next week focusing on that reality, but I just wanted to say it right now so you know. So I want you to be welcome to the identity of the Christ. Let's stand for the hearing of God's word. Merlin.
Today's passage is in Mark 8, verse 27, through chapter 9, verse 1. I'll be reading from the message. Jesus and his disciples headed out for the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And as they walked, he asked, What do the people say that I am? Well, some say John the baptizer, Others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. And then he asked, but you, what are you saying about me? Peter gave the answer, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus warned them to keep it quiet, not to breathe a word of it to anyone. And then he began explaining things to them. It is necessary that the Son of Man proceed to an ordeal of suffering, to be tried and found guilty by the elders, by the high priests, and the religious scholars. He's to be killed, and after three days, he's to rise again. He said this very simply and clearly so that they wouldn't miss it. But Peter grabbed him in protest, and turning and seeing his disciples, wavering and wondering just what to believe, Jesus confronted Peter. He says, Peter, get out of my way. Satan, get lost. You have no idea how God works. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If anyone intends to come with me and have me, he has to let me lead. You are not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run away from suffering, but embrace it. Follow me and I will show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to saving yourself and your true self. So what good would it do to get everything you want, but you lose the real you? What could you ever trade for your soul? If any of you are embarrassed over me, and the way that I'm leading you when you get around your fickle and unfocused friends. Know that you're going to be even a greater embarrassment to the Son of Man when he arrives in all of his splendor of God, his Father, and with an army of holy angels. Then he drove it home by saying, This isn't pie in the sky by and by. Some of you are standing here and you're going to see it happen. You're going to see the kingdom of God and he's going to arrive in a full force. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Y'all take your seat.
Marilyn, I'm impressed that you can read that fine print. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that um, your word is the power of God for our salvation. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to shine on the page and we ask you to unleash heaven. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, look at verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Okay, when the first human being in all of human history said, you are the Christ, guess what happened? The celestial angels and the demons dark all stopped in their tracks. And they all said, shh, did you hear that? The trees bent in worship. The rocks, they sang the The highest peaks shook with eternal joy. The deepest ocean floors couldn't help but crack a smile. So what's happening here? What's so profound about what's being said here? What is the power in this passage? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? Well, Mark wants to tell us, but he wants to do it like a puzzle. He wants you to begin to put it together by figuring out where it happens first. He wants you to focus on, guess what? Place. He wants you to focus, like, where should an announcement like this take place? Where should a cosmic revolutionary revelation like this happen? Let's answer it this way, or let's ask it this way. If you were serious about seeking God, if you were a real God follower, and you wanted to obey him, and you were very religious and built your life around God and following God, where should that place be? I mean, we all know the answer now, don't we? It would be Jerusalem, right? All right, let's say, though, that you're not concerned about religion. You could care less about being good. You could care less about following or obeying God. Let's say you're more interested in and more driven by and more controlled by success and power and influence over people and winning uh, and controlling your life and controlling your world and controlling those around you and controlling your situations and your circumstances, controlling everything. Where would that place be for you? Rome. Where would it be today? Washington, D.C.? I don't know. I think it's Beijing now. Right? Well, no one expects Caesarea Philippi. (laughs) No one. No one. Where does it sit? You got the Sea of Galilee. You got the Jordan emptying into the into the Sea of Galilee. 25 miles north is Caesarea Philippi. Uh, It is uh, a population that's non-Jewish. Its history is very dark, especially for Israel. There are two painful memories of the Israelites in Jesus' day about this particular location. The first has to do with Seleucus. It has to do with the Greek invasion. Do you know what I mean by that? There's a guy named Seleucus. Remember, Alexander Gate had four kings, generals. Seleucus was one of them. He is... Uh, the founder of the Greek-speaking kings that ruled that region, and they defeated the Egyptians there in 200 B.C. And what that did is that that brought in a 25-year war in that region that ravaged Israel. That's where the Maccabean, Maccabean Revolt was. There were so many dead young men that the women, the young women, worried about whether they'd actually be able to marry and have families. It was a devastating time. But it was even worse culturally because the Hellenistic culture was coming in from this city and it was coming through the whole region. The Greeks were bringing in their culture. Remember that the Israelites saw this culture as 
evil and ungodly. And at this time, there was a cultural resistant movement that arose amongst this time in Israel. And that was who? The Pharisees. To resist Hellenization and to promote law keeping and promote serious seeking after God. All right, the second painful uh, misery or memory here is Pan. Do you all remember who Pan is? Some of you that uh, have read some books about Pan as little kids. Pan, the half man, half goat god, remember him? Well, he is the guardian of flocks and guardian of human flourishing, uh, the guardian of everything that has to do with a human flourishing in, in the world. Well, this was his home base. This was his Jerusalem. And so here we have the Caesarea Philippi, the center of Greco-Roman oppression, the symbol of all national Israel's humiliation. And it's also where the Greek invasion of cultures come in, but it's also the religious invasion into Israel. Outright paganism, idolatry had come in. And this is the place chosen by God. This is the place that God chose for the first human being to get Jesus right. So what does this mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? What, what Mark wants you to see about the place is it has something to do with being undeserving. This means if we're going to get Jesus, if you and I are really going to grasp Jesus in our life, and I mean grasp him in your career and grasp him in your daily living and grasp him in your marriages and your relationships and grasp him on a daily way, not just intellectual assents or assumptions about him, not just saying a theological treatise that you agree with it, but actually get Jesus, get who he is, his true identity into the workings and the dynamics of your life. The only way that's going to happen is if you feel deep down in your bones, you're undeserving. We cannot feel deserving if we're going to get Jesus' identity right. For the average person on the street today, what's Christianity about? Do you know? You go to the average person on the street, what do they think Christianity is about? Well, they think Christianity is, is for good people. They think it's for good people because people that go to church want to be better people. People that go to church want to live better lives. They want to have better families. They want to have better relationships. They want to be better personally in their virtue and their character. They want to live better. In other words, Christianity is for the deserving people. Now, deserving people, what do they need? If you're a deserving person, I'm a deserving person, what do I need? Well, I need teaching and I need example. But if I'm undeserving, I need rescue. One author puts it this way. He says, imagine you see a drowning woman. What do you do? Do you throw her a manual on how to swim? Do you throw teaching at her? Or do you stand on the sidelines and really quickly demonstrate the breaststroke for her? Give her an example. Now, you throw a rope. She needs rescue. The Christ is not a teacher of the deserving. He's a rescuer of the undeserving because this is what we need because there's nothing about who we are and what we do that can save ourselves. We need a rope. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? Well, the first answer, it's something to do with the undeserving, the place. 
Now, next, what does Mark do? He gives us Peter's confession. Look at verse 29. You are the Christ. Christ in the Greek. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word what? Messiah. Yes. So Peter is saying, look, you're the better David. You're the super son of David. You're that ultra king that we've been waiting for that's going to rescue Israel and restore Israel to world status and actually rule the whole world with this cosmic revolutionary shalom and peace over everything. And Jesus is right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Peter got it. He got Jesus right. Or did he? I mean, this is really confusing. I mean, look at Peter's response. I mean, Jesus' response to Peter in verse 30. What did he say? And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is what Jesus has told everyone in Mark so far when they haven't got him yet. This is what Jesus tells everyone who's pursuing a revolutionary zeal, a Messiah madness. This is what Jesus tells everyone who is being controlled and driven by a desire for power and influence and to control your world who are self-reliant and self-trusting. In other words, Jesus tells us to everyone who still thinks they're deserving. So Peter gets Jesus. He's the Messiah. You're the Christ. But he doesn't get Jesus. Hmm. So what's missing in Peter's view of the ultra king? Look at verse 31. That's why Jesus goes into this. He pulls them aside and it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now he said this word plainly. Now the word in the ESV is not there. Word should be there. It's in the original language because what Mark is doing, this is so theologically significant, is he's taking word and referring to the word of God and he's using it for the first time to link it and connect it to what he just said about the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So in other words, the word linked in Mark is the gospel. It's not just any ordinary kind of teaching or doctrine of God. So for Mark, the word of God is exactly how he began his gospel. It's all about Jesus. So what's missing in Peter's view of the the Christ? What's missing is suffering. What's missing is rejection. Death, defeat, losing badly. What's missing in Peter's understanding of the Christ is the cross. The reason Peter and the rest of the disciples cannot see the cross in the Christ is because they still are deserving. Being undeserving hasn't worked its way down into their bones. Now, we're going to spend more time on this, but I want you to look at 34 through 38. What's happening there is you have uh, their deserving is found in their need for power and control, their need to win, to succeed, to be inferior to no one, uh, their need to never lose. This is how they're trying to save themselves. The word self in there is actually suke, which means your person, your personality, your personhood, your sense of self, who you are in the core of your existence. They are trying to find themselves. They are trying to find a sense of an intact identity in winning and in success and in never being inferior and never failing 
And in doing so, they're losing themselves. They're disintegrating. They're coming apart. So Vince Lombardi wasn't the first to say winning is everything. That's in every single human heart. So what Jesus says in 34 through 38 is so loaded. We're going to spend a whole next week on it, okay? But what we need to know now is that Peter and the disciples are trying to save their own souls by winning and control and power and influence. To do this, to not win for them, to not be successful for them, would be to lose their very self, okay? Uh, I, in high school, wrestled. You all know that. Most of you all know that. Um, There was a Christmas tournament. It was over Christmas. And uh, they happened to seat me in the number one spot at that time, which is great. It's quite an honor. It's a prestigious tournament. I was thrilled about it, but I didn't realize how that would work into my soul. I won the tournament. Yippee. But I walked out with my head lower than I think it's ever been in wrestling in my whole career. Why? Because I wrestled not to win. I wrestled not to lose. Losing for me would mean an emotional death. It would be to lose my identity. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, I still struggle with that. I struggle with trying to find myself in success, achievement, winning, never failing. This is why peewee sports of any kind today, what happens? Scores aren't kept, right? Everyone gets a trophy. I haven't figured that out. Everyone's the MVP. Oh, you're the MVP, and you're the MVP, and you're the MVP. No one goes in second place. No one certainly comes in last place. Everyone's an MVP. Everyone's a winner. Why? It's not because we're afraid of competition. What are we afraid of? Losing. Losing is so traumatic to the human experience that we will protect little Johnny and little Susie from ever having to experience it. Or we should say little Johnny and little Susie's parents from ever having to experience it, right? This is why Peter pulls Jesus aside. Do you see what's happening? After Jesus tells him about suffering, he tells him about rejection, and he tells him about death, and he tells him about losing and losing badly, Peter pulls him aside, and the text says he rebukes Jesus. The word rebuke could not be any stronger. It's the same word that Mark has used so far and only so far in Jesus rebuking demons. Peter is basically saying to Jesus, your view of a suffering Messiah, Jesus, satanic. But Jesus says in verse 33, what? No, your view is, get ye behind me, Satan. Peter, a Christianity without the cross is satanic. A Christianity of teaching and example without rescue is satanic. A teaching for the deserving is satanic. We don't need teaching. We don't need an example. In fact, I go so far as to say all the teaching 
And all the example you need has already been written on your heart. That's not our problem. Our problem is we reject it. We've already rejected it. Our problem is that we are helpless. We are lost. We need a rope. So we are not deserving. We cannot earn or save self. Again, we're going to unpack this some more, but this passage, 34 through 38, is telling you you cannot earn, you cannot save yourself. And again, it's not your physical life. It is your selfhood. You cannot, I cannot generate, save, earn a self. If we try through people's approval, through power and influence, and through personal security and controlling our life, and through our own standards and expectations, we will lose ourselves. We will be undone. Your identity will be like water in your hands and you just can't hold it together. It's just running out. We're not good people. If I'm the first person saying this, I'm sorry. Your parents should have told you when you were two years old. We're not good people. The best people in the world killed Jesus. That's why Jesus said, listen, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they reject me. They kill me. One scholar puts it this way. His name's James Edwards. I I love this dude. He said, it's not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God, but humanity at its absolute best. Folks, it's it's not the people in Caesarea Philippi who killed Jesus. The death of Jesus will not be the result of a momentary lapse or aberration of the human nature, but rather the result of careful deliberations from respected religious leaders who will justify their actions by the highest standards of law and morality, even believing them to render service to God. The best people in the world killed Jesus. So we are the undeserving, we are the lost, we are the helpless. We are Caesarea Philippi. And if you take that and work that down deep into your bones and realize you are the undeserving, you are about ready to come alive. So here's the rope. Jesus suffered. Let's look at this passage. I'm going to use that 31, verse 31, and just kind of focus on some of the things that are said. Here's the rope that Jesus gives. Jesus says, listen, Peter, a Christ or a crossless Messiah is not a Messiah. So here's the cross. Here's what's going to happen. I'm filling it in. This is what it means. He's going to suffer many, many things. But he's going to suffer many, many things because he is going to be your sin substitute. In other words, he's going to take all your sin and he's going to so identify with it. He's going to be the ultimate compassionate person. It's going to be your sin in his heart. He's actually going to take your sin and make it his own and he's going to bear it and he's going to suffer so many things because of it. And then he's going to be rejected. And he's going to be rejected not just by man and not just by religious leaders. He's going to be rejected by God himself. And why is he going to be rejected? 
so you can gain the approval of God. You can have the acceptance of God. There is nothing better than that. Uh, then Jesus died. Why did he die? Again, we're, oh, I should have told you this earlier. I forget so many things, but then I remember things I never even wrote down. So it kind of evens out. It's kind of cool. All right, if you look at um, 27, it says, and on the way, that is a new phrase that Mark is going to use over and over and over now for the rest of the book. Why? Because on the way now means Jesus has now set himself for Jerusalem. Jesus has now set himself to fulfill what he's just saying in this passage. He sets himself for the cross. So you're going to see on the way because Jesus' mission has always been and always will be the cross. So when it says here that he will die on the way, he will die on the cross and he will die to take our sin debt upon us. Why? Because we know and hopefully we're seeing, we think we're deserving people. Our greatest roadblock to actually coming to Jesus is we think we are good people. Or it's so important for us to consider ourselves good people that to think of ourselves as not being good is to actually lose your identity. Jesus says that clutching after a false identity is sin. And it's rejecting me as your source of identity in life. To try to find it in yourself. And that's extremely evil. And it deserves death. And Jesus takes that death, you're my death, and dies and pays the penalty. Last thing Jesus does is he loses really, really badly. But just in case we miss it, he also said resurrection in there, right? It's kind of like just kind of slipped in. I wonder when I, if you were there, I was there. I mean, did they hear that part? I don't know. They didn't hear that part because he's rebuking Jesus. But that had been like, what? 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 what did you just say? Could you talk about that a little bit? Let's blow that up. Put that on the screen. Explain that one to me. And the explanation is this, is that Jesus' death and his suffering is not an ordinary death and suffering. It's not like you and I when we die. His death, his suffering was triumph. It was victorious. It always had resurrection attached to it. So Jesus loses and wins. He wins by losing. So you and I win. We win. Your identity is so safe, you are a winner. You are successful. You are honorable. You are even great. Everything you've longed to be. You're okay. So what happens? What does this do? Well, we're going to look at it next week. We're going to focus on it, but I'm going to give you a sneak preview here. Here's the point. The Christ always and only means the cross. A Christianity without the cross is satanic. So deny yourself. Deny yourself. What does it mean? We'll explore it more thoroughly, but at least we know what it means now. It means to take deep down into your bones your undeserving. 
To deny yourself is to deny, deny your deservingness, deny your goodness, deny your efforts to try to save yourself. It is to say, I can't. And the next thing it says, to take up his cross, take it up as your own. That means to take all your sin and take it to his cross. Take all your shame and all your failure, all your inferiority, all your disintegration of identity realities and take it to his cross. Take all your condemnation and all your sense of cursing and all the low-grade fever of guilt you fear and take it to his cross. Take up his cross as your own and follow him. How? You know, like most of us do, uh, who's the dude in Gulliver's Travels? It'll never work. Whatever. Who is it? Y'all know who I'm talking about? Okay, that's the way we live the Christian life. We follow it like that. We have frowns. It'll never work. We're doomed. But I'll do my duty. You do your duty. And I'll make sure I'm watching you do your duty. Right? Now, following Jesus is life. It's freedom. It's what you were meant to be. The cross, it means the Christ. Amen.